Welcome to the seventh session of our church history class. We are in my home now, Neil, and it looks like we've had a fall windstorm here on the table. Um, but we're going to be talking today about the head of the church. Before we do that, let's open with prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this time that we have had to look at the ways that you have moved in history, and especially the ways that you have moved in your church. We come to a day today to a period called the Dark Ages, and Father, uh, while many would look at this time and say, wow, God was not doing much, you were doing a great deal. So we pray that we would see your hand as well as uh, the unthoughtful and unwise decisions that men made about the leadership of your church. Again, some good came out of it, and we know that you are sovereign and that you're always working your purposes in the lives of your, your covenant people and also in, in the life of your church. So guide us in our thoughts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, Scripture has uh, a good bit to say about the head of the church, Neil. Uh, we're going to talk about what man says about it, but... Would you share with us uh, what, what, what Colossians says? I sure will. Don't you think it's a good idea in a class about church history to actually go back to the Bible? <laughs> Occasionally, that's right. So let's see what the Apostle Paul told the Colossians about the head of the church. This is one of many passages that we could go to. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, Brad, uh, this class session we're going to be talking about several hundred years worth of debates and controversies about who the head of the church is, and not once in our studies are we going to see Christ as one of the options. It's either going to be the Pope or the King. Uh, so what? what's the name? Why would we have this discussion during this era? Well, uh, it, it's known as the Medieval Dark Ages. It's the Dark Ages, the medieval era of the Dark Ages. There are, it, it's, it's a thousand-year period, but it's really divided up into to three different eras. Uh, the first era, the one we're going to be covering, not only today, but the next two sessions as well. So three sessions, we're going to look at this chunk of time, and we're going to look at different events, different topics during this era. This first one is called... the the early medieval dark ages, and it goes from about 450 to 1,000. This was a, a particularly difficult time. Uh, then there are the high middle ages, known as, uh, or uh, in the time period 1,000 to 1,300, and the waning middle ages, uh, 1,300 to the Reformation. Um, so there were some distinctive marks of the middle ages, especially this this first section, uh, well, well, the whole time, the whole thousand years. One, one mark would be that there was not much doctrinal advance. There were some outstanding rulers and theologians who made a huge impact and it, during this time, but there was a fairly monolithic doctrinal perspective. Everybody, everyone's beliefs were being, were being narrowed into one particular way of thinking. And one of the beautiful things that I know that you and I enjoy, Neil, is talking about the 
diversity of, of thinking among conservative theologians. Not, we're not talking about the, the, the spectrum from conservative to liberal. Uh, in this time, there was no diverse thinking at all. It, it was all narrowed down to what, as we will come to, the, to, to learn, the Pope said it was. Uh, Whenever there was any diverse thinking, it was very few and far between. We're covering about 600 years just yeah. in this, this one class today. Yes. So what were some of the, of, of the other marks uh, of this middle, of the Middle Ages? Well, I think the second point would be that, um, again, after Constantinianism, this, you know, Constantine bringing the church and state together, is what we see as an unholy matrimony, we might say, between the church and the state. And that is where with Constantine, he had influence over the church and gave them certain freedoms and, and also you know, a few regulations along the way. Now, during these uh, early Middle Ages, we're going to see a struggle between who has the power. Is it the church, the head of the church, the pope, or is it the emperor or the king? And um, we're going to see how power corrupts, and whoever tries to seek absolute power will be absolutely corrupted. That's right. Uh, it, as, the, as the Roman Empire waned, and, and we're going to, that's going to be our next section. I, I think it would be fair to say at this point, I'm just going to jump, stop and, and jump in and say that um, a lot of this structure comes from Brian Borgman. This is a huge chunk of material. So if you, if you listen to Borgman, you'll, you'll hear this structure. Hopefully we'll say some things that, that he doesn't say, but we'll say a lot of the th things that he does say. And one of the things that Borgman points out is that there were state churches uh, in, in, in many different sections as, the, as, as, as power was decentralized we're going to see power decentralized and then it's going to come all rushing back together uh, but over these state churches the Pope was eventually gained ascendancy over all of these areas and because of that as already mentioned there began to develop a single world view uh, and, and pretty much the Pope determined that one. Now, of course, he had advisors around him. Sure. But this man held a lot of authority and power. Tremendous influence, a lot of sway, not only within the church, but how the church then affected the culture, the government, the, the society. And um, one of the things I was talking with David with just before the, this recording uh, was not only the musical developments over this time period, but language how language played an important part in that with the Roman Empire you had pretty much a, a single language, Latin. Of course there was Greek in the east and Latin in the west. But then when we start to see the fall of the Roman Empire, all these different tribal nations coming in, there was a mixture of, of, um, of languages being introduced to the people. And I think this will kind of lead us into our fourth point of some of the, the good things about the church, which, uh, which speaks of, of language. that. Um, the world, the singular worldview, I think, was helped because the people within the church spoke the same Latin language that the Pope then could use language itself as a tool, an instrument to exercise his influence. Uh, another pre-recording uh, conversation, you had pointed out that um, it, it, it was... Uh, on the flip side, the negative aspect of the language is that only the the leaders of the church were literate, and so consequently, and, and this will come into play in so many ways. But uh, 
but they held all of the power. But at the same time, that language held the empire together, or the Roman Catholic uh, Church, Roman Catholic Christendom, kept Europe and Western civilization from, from falling apart after the fall of the Roman Empire. In fact, it was the, the Roman Church in this entire thousand-year period that gives Western civilization its structure and cohesiveness. Uh, and really, its, its corruption paves the way for the Reformation, which becomes the Protestant Church, and many good things, and we're all doing this together because of that Reformation, but uh, before it was really negative, it had some very much positive uh, things to say about the way civilization in the West existed. Uh, the church could only gain ascendancy, and we'll talk about that more later, but because the Roman Empire fell, it was weakening. Uh, we've talked about in Augustine's time all of these battles, and there are challenges mm -hmm. from outside the empire, but that really began to, toward the end of the, 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 the fourth century, just as the doctrine was really coming together, um, the the political structure of the empire or the military was exactly falling apart. So what were some of the uh, groups that were of a threat to the empire? It's really interesting. It's It can be a little confusing. Uh, I get confused a lot talking about these different tribal nations yeah. because they, they seem to move around a lot over these couple of centuries that we're going to be talking about and one followed the other and, and then so forth. But uh, the Huns are one of them. We think of the famous Attila the Hun. Right, and they, they were Asians. Right, come in from the Asia, from Asia, and they, they sort of pushed out or tried to conquer all the different uh, Germanic tribes in Central Europe. And they, they didn't like that. And that caused an issue. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of uh, staying to fight the Huns, they moved also inside the Roman Empire. And uh, the Romans didn't like that. So then you're going to have alien... Uh, tribes living within your your borders, and it's going to spur contra not only controversy but war. You're going to see the the Vandals, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, and then uh, it's this great the confederacy uh, that really banded together to fight the Huns. They did. It started out in a defensive mode. They want to protect their culture, their land, their resources. But then they they realize that hey, all this power, we can do something with it. Exactly. And they started pushing people around. <laughs> and pretty soon they pushed Rome around, and Rome fell. Um, just as Rome wasn't built in a day, it, it didn't really fall in a single day either. There's, uh, If you're looking for dates, we're going to look at two specific dates where uh, Rome fell. And the first one is earlier on in the, in the first, first part of the 5th century. In 410, uh, Rome is sacked and, and overtaken by, I believe, the Vandals. This was almost... Uh, I, think it, I think it was the Visigoths who overtook Rome and then the Vandals took Carthage and Hippo, that area where... Uh, but only because I've got that right in front of me, uh, Neil, uh, I, we talked about before we began rolling that we hope we don't trip over ourselves too much because this is just an enormous amount of information. But uh, the, when, when Rome fell in 410... Uh, two leading the, uh, members of the church in the leaders of the church, Jerome and Augustine, had different different views. 
And Jerome was was he in Jerusalem by this point? Do you know? He was. I believe this is part of the, the later years of his life. So he's yes. in Jerusalem. He's outside of the that western right. picture. Right. Um, but yeah, you see, two huge theologians during this period have two very different and divergent views about what this means. What does it mean that the Roman Empire is crumbling? And Jerome took it in one direction, saying. Since we have church and the state together as one, if one falls, so does the other. So we see from his perspective that God's kingdom is crumbling and disintegrating. But yet, Augustine, what was his response? Um, Augustine says, well, no, uh, there's a city of man, a city of God. Jerome says, the city which has conquered the world has itself been conquered. And of course, he had a little bit of a narrow worldview to say it conquered the world. the Asians would, uh, the the real Asians, not the Asians that we talk about with the Huns and uh, those guys that were really close by, but the the Asians from uh, China, those areas, uh, obviously uh, have not been conquered by Rome. But a good bit of the of the world that these people knew had been conquered by Rome, and so uh, Jerome was very fatalistic, pessimistic. It's over. It's done. God's work is done on earth. And Augustine says, "Oh no, no." Uh, in fact, Augustine was fairly discouraged about it. He was depressed. However, he saw the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. He died in 430, I believe it was, that with the vandals at the gates. If you want to be poetic about it, but Augustine said, "There's the city of man. There's the city of God." And even though the the, the barbarians conquered, uh, have conquered the Roman Empire, which was also the the home of the of the Roman Church, the Catholic Church, the Universal Church, not the Catholic with the big C at this point, although it's definitely mm-hmm. moving there. But he uh, recognized the work of God would go on. Well, that's the first and earlier date of the fall of Rome, and um, later we'll see the uh, the power of these tribal kings to um, to influence Roman society. In 66 years later, in 476, the last Latin Roman emperor is is deposed permanently, and so that's within a century we have the fall of the Roman Empire, um, sort of. Yes, sort of. It it doesn't completely go away. And in fact, this is what I was trying to think a while ago. While the the barbarians, so to speak, take over the Roman Empire, they are influenced by the message of the people that they conquered. I mean, we saw that in the Old Testament a lot, where these Israeli kings or kings of Israel, kings of Judah would go and conquer another area and of all the crazy things, they would bring back the gods of that nation and worship it. Well now it's a good thing. Now the barbarians conquer Rome which is uh, identified not only by the empire but also by the church and they are converted. Yeah, When we think of missions, in this period of time, missions is a very limited and scarce idea, but here the church doesn't need to go out. The, the pagans are coming to them, which is an, an interesting sight. And, and they're a mix of pagans and Arians as well, because they have been uh, reached by Arian uh, missionaries 
even during this period and, and earlier during the fourth century. Yes, thankfully, this Aryan controversy, as a, as an empire-wide controversy, will be put to rest mm. before too long. But it's still going to be a problem for a, a bit. I, I can't help but think that in America we have the same opportunity. The world has come to us, and maybe sooner or later it's not going to be. It's going to be very much like the Roman Empire. If we fall, we will have fallen from within. We will have imploded. But in the, in, at, for now and later, if indeed we lose our uh, rank as a world power, nonetheless, the gospel is, is here and people, the world still wants to come here. And we have opportunity to share Jesus with pagans and with religions that uh, would deny Jesus' deity. Well, within this, you know, summarizing the first session here, you know, the first few minutes of this class, um, we're, we're looking at the fall of Rome, and, and there are different sources that you can study to find out why Rome declined and fall. But for the most part, it, it came within, from within, right. and uh, the, the vandals and the Goths and everybody from the outside was just icing on the cake. Yeah, it was... Yeah, it was like chopping rotted wood. <laughs> so. But at this point, the church is going to step up a little bit, and it's going to take on some, some power, some influence, and this is both good and bad because it's one of those things that when we look back and we define Western civilization, we're basically defining church history. This is Western Roman church, which holds society, not government, because the Roman government has fallen, but uh, the church is going to maintain the culture and the society for, for centuries to come. It is, and uh, there's, a, there's a portion of the church that we're going to talk, uh, talk uh, substantially about in a couple of weeks, the Celtic church in Ireland. The Irish, Irish church is flourishing, interestingly enough. We'll learn that Patrick goes over as a missionary, and then the Irish end up sending missionaries back to the right. same place, you know, <laughs> to uh, re-evangelize the people who had taken the lead. So um, we're going to take a break, and, and when we come back, we'll talk about the ascendancy, the origins of the papacy. How did we get a pope? Uh, was it Peter? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> we, we can be safe to say no. Yeah, yeah. But we'll talk about the origins of the papacy and then the rise of the papacy. Pope just means father. So we can have Pope Brad, perhaps. I don't know. But um, we're, here we're going maybe, to talk about... Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> um, but both uh, churches in the East and the West refer to their bishops as Pope, Papa. Um, so we hear about papal encyclicals, papal bulls. What is the papacy? Well, like you say, the priests were known as popes, but eventually this came to be all residing in one person. I'll, I'll give you the Catholic encyclopedia definition of, of the papacy. It's the pope, as successor of Peter and the vicar of Christ, governs the church as its supreme head, and it signifies the papal influence viewed as a political force in history. So it's both mm. religious and political in nature. And it is, like we've already stated, invested in one individual. That is interesting how it, 
even the definition from a Catholic encyclopedia talks about the political and the, the church aspects because that's what we start to see form during this period is is the power of this bishop, this Roman bishop, uh, take shape both politically and uh, ecclesiology, you know, within church structure. It, it wasn't political at all at first. It was religious in nature. In fact, we were supposed to be. We we remember. Uh, vividly how the church was persecuted by the state. So there wasn't uh, this combination. Where did this idea of papacy, uh, of a pope, of, of one man having so much power, didn't happen overnight? No, and, and this is something we'll see as we study the Catholic Church or the church during this entire era of the Middle Ages is that Catholicism or the church during this time is very fluid. Think, uh, very points that we would think of as Roman Catholic. You can ask Catholics, oh, when did this take place? When was this official? And there's no one answer. You can go back to when the seeds were planted. You can go back to when it was passed into tradition or dogma. Or then you can look at another time when it was made official. So let's go back to the seeds. As Protestants, we wouldn't recognize the Pope. We would recognize a plurality of, of elders over each individual church. But if we go back to our earlier lessons in, in church history, uh, we look at a, a bishop named Ignatius, who um, in the face of persecution and for the sake of uh, maintaining truth among the, uh, the Catholic Church in the face of heresy, um, recommended that uh, churches be governed or be led by a single bishop, and not only, not a sole bishop, but just one who's in charge. Was it uh, Ignatius who said, we've already used this in, the, in one of the films, no, it was Irenaeus, it, who's our next name on this Irenaeus. list, who says, what, what is truth? What does the bishop say? Um, and Ignatius was early, wasn't he? Yeah, barely into the, uh, the second century. We're talking about 110 time frame in Irenaeus. Not far behind him either. So Ignatius says, one bishop over each church, individual churches. For a pragmatic purpose, <laughs> though unbiblical precedent. So how does Irenaeus add to that idea well, of strong uh, central authority? Well, he takes upon that, is he sort of makes it official by way of apostolic succession. And we've talked about that before, too. And even though... It's, Reformed or Protestants, we would look at a different type of apostolic succession. Um, here, Irenaeus is saying that, hey, bishops who follow after the apostles, or especially Peter, they hold a certain level of, of power, of influence, and respect that, that others do not. So you must flock to him. You must follow what the bishop says. And again, uh, truth was at stake in these early centuries. Uh, there were so many heresies that, and, and we did not, church, the churches did not have scriptures in the same forms that we did. Now there were a lot of letters, but it hadn't been fully decided which letters were uh, worthy of the status of canon and which were not. So uh, a lot of authority, spiritual authority, it was wise in some senses to give that much spiritual authority to the leaders. Um, Cyprian took that to another level. He's coming along in the 
third century, and, 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 and we've already talked about Cyprian's famous statement, he cannot have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. And Cyprian was fighting a particular, uh, what became to be deemed a heresy later by the church at this time. Yeah, I think Ignatius and Irenaeus were, were concerned more about um, holding the truth in the church and fighting heresy, whereas Cyprian was looking more towards the unity of the church, trying to pull the lapsed Christians back in who, um, who had denied the faith under duress, and then trying to maintain peace while the, the group of Donatists were, were searching to make themselves pure and, and pull away from the Catholic Church at that time. So Cyprian was looking more towards peace and unity and said that uh, the bishop, instead of being head over one church, he can. there are different bishops, different levels of bishops over certain regions, over an entire region, over many churches. So that's where we get the idea of dioceses uh, come into play. That That's right. And so you, it just keeps... In some ways it's expanding. In other ways, uh, well, authority of one individual is expanding. Uh, so one man over one church, apostolic authority, then over churches in a city or a region. Well, that starts to beg the question then, are there certain cities or regions more important than others? And yes, there are. So which bishop should you listen to, right? Right. And, and, and so certain cities had a claim to authority. Uh, Jerusalem, obviously. You, I believe you talked about some of this last time, Neil. In Antioch, it was a biblical right. city. Right. And, and we start to see a little bit of division based on uh, theological schools, based on language, because in the West you have Latin, and in the East you have Greek-speaking churches. So you start to see a little difference of prestigious levels, mm -hmm. depending on which city you are in. Um, those biblical cities would have a higher level than you know, the, the church down the road, or um, Constantinople in Rome would have a higher prestige um, simply because they are the seat of political, Rome, power. political power. So here enters the Roman bishop, and he's vying for primacy over Constantinople. Right, which is now, well, Constantinople, by the time Rome gets its ecclesiastical authority, uh, Constantinople is now the political seat of power. So Rome becomes the... The, the head of the church or the center of the church because of Peter. Uh, Peter has the keys of the kingdom. He was the bishop of Rome, or so say the later church historians. And because of that, in the ap apostolic succession, it's passed down in Rome in particular. So Rome ascends as the uh, primary place of church power. So, if we, as we've already stated, we don't believe that Peter was the first pope, who could we identify as the first pope? There, there are just a lot of candidates, and some maybe call themselves that. Others, though, we might say, this is the guy where the power really begins to shift into his court, his church, his rule. Like I said, there are several different candidates um, I think as, as Protestants, we would look at how they fulfilled 
the role of both. They'd have to meet both the um, the church leadership as well as the political power. And uh, what kind of fascinates me is to look at how it built on each other. We look at um, uh, the Roman bishop in the late 4th century, I believe it's uh, Damasus, who is the first to use that passage where Jesus declares, on this rock will I build my church, and he actually applies it to Peter. And being from Rome, yeah. he's naturally going to say, okay, since Peter was in Rome during his final days, yes. we inherit right. the primacy, the, the prestige of being the um, prime pope. And then later we have, uh, I believe it's Innocent, yes, who uh, is the first one to actually claim papal authority. I am the man. <laughs> the, the Roman bishop is where the buck stops. And uh, there was a, a lesser-known guy, I believe, it was Galatius. And what was his input? Um, Galatius uh, was in the late fifth century. So this, we go from the early part of the fourth. Uh, there is another uh, a guy in here, Leo the first, who gives a, a great deal of leadership during the Vandal invasion, and Emperor uh, Leo, or excuse me, Emperor Valentinian, then gives Leo civil authority over Western provinces. He couldn't rule, so we said, "I know who can." That's the Pope. So he's got a little bit of civil authority. But Galatius um, becomes the Bishop of Rome. And in, in his short, very short tenure, he says that, that, that my seat, the Bishop of Rome, has authority over the church. And he was the first one to say that the Pope is the Vicar of Christ. What is Vicar of Christ? I mean, we think of the term vicarious. Right. And, and again, this is where I would, I really appreciated how Brian Borgman... He does, he lays it out. Like, if, Just if I, parroting his... You know, uh, his if I do something vicariously, I'm doing it through the, the other person or through their experience or as a substitute. So what Galatius was saying is that the Bishop of Rome is the substitute for Christ here on earth. He, he essentially had the temerity to say, I am the visible head of the church on earth. And that, would you say that's... Blasphemy? It, you would have to, and it's it's astounding that a minister would say that. But again, it's different times, and I'm not I'm not making justification for it because we can look at it and say clearly this is wrong. We see how we got to this place, and right. I think there's a lesson for us to be very careful right. not to allow culture to move us so much in a particular direction. It's inevitable at a certain level. But it's one of those, you know, back to the, to 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 the the, the theme of this entire study. We're uh, dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. So we get a good look and say, "Man, that was." We gotta watch that. We see it much more clear in uh, in hindsight. Well, you've already told us that Jesus is the head of the church. Uh, up to the to beginning of the sixth century. Um, Tremendous amount of authority has gone to one man. It's coming down to one person. Civil, religious, religious representative of Christ is the Bishop of Rome. Uh, Gregory the First, who was a good man uh, late in the, in, in the seventh, uh, 6th century, early 7th century, takes this to 
a new level altogether. He's Bishop of Rome for approximately 24 years. And, 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 and before he was bishop, he was a monk. That had some impact on uh, some of his beliefs, or actually uh, an impact on the church later. Uh, whoa. What were some of the, the, the things that Gregory brought to this development of the Catholic Church, or we might actually say degradation as it slid right. downward? You know, they didn't just jump into rank heresy. It was very gradual, and what Gregory did was set precedence for a lot of things that either became tradition or dogma or official church teaching. And he was quite the administrator. Mm -hmm. So, and he had, was a forceful uh, enough personality to carry out his plans and structure. Uh, he had a missionary heart and political power, so because he had negotiated with the Lombards and that and brought peace to the empire. And that that said a lot when the bishop is sent to negotiate <laughs> with an enemy. Right. And the enemy sits down face-to-face -face with an equal and says, okay. So that's what we see in Leo, Leo the first, because he is the one who met Attila the Hun right. outside of Rome, but yet he didn't wield the, the type of church influence that others um, held. And Glacius would have the audacity to say that he was the God's representative yeah. on, on earth, but here Gregory combines the two, that he is uh, humble in one respect, but as a monk, uh, very not demeaning to himself, but he was, he did have a magnanimous uh, personality, but he was very administratively smart, and he had the, what it took to wield the political power to, to make these um, societal, governmental uh, interdictions. This good man made his mark mostly on the church with several things that we would be identifying markers of the Catholic Church, uh, for starters, he, he transformed liturgy and worship, encouraging the laity to sing. To, to this point, it was just choirs who were singing. Now the laity is singing. So David is particularly fond of Gregory, I'm sure, but you've heard of Gregorian chants. Um, you know, I was hoping David would, would be able to join us for this one because it, it is the uh, introduction of a type of music, a type of liturgy that is still with us today. That you can go to your, uh, you know, online and purchase Gregorian chants, and here they are, uh, you know, 1600 or 1500 years old. And um, so he, he had a mind and a heart for worship to bring the congregation into singing, but it didn't end there. He, he um, there was a story about seeing a, a blonde-haired boy on the slave block, and he said, "What is this boy?" This and is a younger Gregory. Is this? A, I believe it's the... the it's the Pope. He's Pope. Yeah. It's, it's after he is Pope he's or it's when he's younger, yes. I believe it's Pope when he's Gregory younger. when he was younger, yes. Correct. And he um, said, this boy is an angle, you know, from England. And he said, no, this boy is an angel. No one who looks as fair should be left outside of heaven. So thus began a missionary movement to evangelize the angles north of, of Rome. Um, one of the things that Gregory did was to elevate the tradition of the fathers mm -hmm. to the level of Scripture. Now, we, we started this session by you picking up the Word and telling us that Jesus is the head of the church. Now, Gregory is saying, look what the fathers have told us. And you can understand, if he wants to continue this 
trajectory toward authority all in one individual, why he would quote Ignatius, why he would quote Irenaeus and Cyprian and say the tradition of the fathers rises to the level. Obviously, we see great benefit in this church history class, but we're not going to elevate anybody's thoughts, not even Calvin and Luther when we get there, uh, to the same level as Scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually, it almost tips, and whether it's stated mm -hmm. or not, it feels like the traditions of the church are more important than, um, than the Scripture. And some of the doctrines that we get from church tradition rather than Scripture that, that Gregory instituted was um, baptismal regeneration. Maybe a bit of a technical term, but uh, basically when you're baptized, it has the effect of washing away your sins. It, in effect, saves you. And, and by this point in, in, the, in the church, uh, baptism is administered uh, to babies. Um, and so, essentially, saying that the, the, the act of baptism has some salvific effect. Uh, there are a lot of Reformed traditions that baptize infants, but wouldn't say that. But, right. but Gregory said, no, this is actually part of a person's salvation, and, and, and it saves them. It keeps them safe. And actually, many, I have a good friend who I've witnessed to right after I got saved, and he said, I've been baptized, I'm okay. And he was, mm -hmm. a, he was a Catholic, so he felt like that infant baptism saved him. Uh, he also had something to say about purgatory. Gregory thought that you needed to pay for your sins, post-baptismal sins, and there were two ways that that happened. Mm -hmm. One on earth, one after earth, purgatory. Uh, of course, you've taken us all the way back to second, is it second Maccabees? Right. Where this idea is first found. But then also, uh, Gregory elevates this to uh, church, uh, official doctrine of the Roman church, that you're going to suffer for your sins. In a type of, neither, you're neither living on earth or in heaven yet. And the second way to pay for your sins, and again, as, as an infant, if I'm baptized, I'm going to sin afterward. Uh, yeah. Uh, I am as an adult, but <laughs> that's another story. The second way to pay for your sins or to receive remission for the penalty of those sins here on earth is penance. Now this was uh, spoken of before, uh, I can't remember who it was, it may have been Cyprian, who talked about doing works of repentance. Right, in, in order to get back into the church. Right. Because the Donatists wanted to just throw them out if they had been baptized by a, a priest that elapsed. And here we are again with the same thought, just carried a step further, saying not only must you do it, but you must do it in order to relinquish the penalty of, of your sins. Yeah, I think we felt, we spent a lot of time uh, saying, look, Cyprian was not as bad a guy as people want him to have been. And yet, his ideas were easily mistaken misapplied later. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and who knows, Cyprian may have had some of those thoughts. He may have just been a, ahead of his time. Yeah, they, they were easily misapplied. <laughs> yeah, they, that's exactly right. Um, penance, uh, of course, if you, you do some of those works of penance, that lessens your time in, in purgatory. And this would eventually become the breaking point uh, in, in the 1400s. We're going to talk about, or excuse me, 1500s, 16th century, when Martin Luther said, this is ridiculous, this is this idea that you can pay 
for getting some time out of um, out of purgatory. But there's a, a, a schism before that. It, we're going to talk about next week between West and East. But back to Western uh, Catholicism, which was all Roman Empire Catholicism at this time. The East had their concerns about what was going on in Rome, but they agreed. They said, okay, he's our man. Uh, until later they began to say, we, this is really getting troubling, and eventually said, we can't take it. Um, Gregory was the first to say dogmatically that the sacrifice of the Mass was a real sacrifice. And I think that's just as audacious as anything that Galatia said about being uh, the substitute of Christ on earth, that you're sacrificing Christ again in the flesh and in the blood. Amazing. Uh, it, it was, and this is going to be um, codified much later in, in the Fourth Lateral Council in the 1300s, I believe, that it, it became, again, official church doctrine. But Gregory used that language and had no problem. He oversaw the invocation of saints. We've already talked about that much, but Gregory said, okay, yes, we can, we can give these guys a place of esteem that is official, right. and we can pray to them. Officially bringing saints and also relics, icons, into the church as part of uh, church life ceremony. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in the next segment, and we're running a little bit over in this segment. I, I can't believe it. Time got yeah. away from us here. Um, Gregory uh, ultimately had the effect of bringing supreme authority to one man in the church, but there were some political implications about a hundred years later that just consummated this uh, or, or brought this holy matrimony, unholy matrimony uh, into the church where the ceremony happened, beginning with a man named Charles Martel. Charles the Hammer, and uh, that's the meaning of Martel. Uh, again, after Rome fell to the Goths and the Vandals, you had different tribes, different nations all around. So uh, Charles was Chamberlain, or what we might call Prime Minister of the region of the Franks that uh, later became France. And we'll talk a little bit more about him next week uh, when we look at the rise of Islam. Um, and we're what, grateful for his uh, efforts, yeah. uh, his military. Uh, but how he and the Pope came together was that um, he basically wielded the power of the king. But his son did even more with the power of the Pope, didn't he? Yes, uh, Pepin the Short uh, functioned much like a prime minister uh, as the kings grew weaker, as you say. And, and he aided the Pope by crushing the Lombards in 751. You know, it's interesting. Gregory negotiated with the Lombards. Now Pepin is helping the Pope by crushing the Lombards in 751. And the Pope crowned him King of France and some have called this the most important event in medieval history. And really, I think it's because of what happened with Pepin's son, Charlemagne. Or Charles the Great, Charles the Magnificent. And uh, I'm sure if you remember back from your, your world history classes, Charlemagne was one of those big names during the medieval periods. And uh, again, he was son of Pepin, so he was in control of the Franks, but he became more than that. Uh, not only did the Pope depose the Frankish king in order to institute Pepin, but here with Charlemagne, we don't know exactly how or how much Charlemagne knew, but out of the robes of the Pope, he took a crown, and on Christmas Day, the year 800, crowned Charlemagne the Emperor, 
Augustus of the new Holy Roman Empire, which, um, depending on your sources, you may have heard before that was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Uh, Charlemagne did a lot of big things for both the church and the state. He was an able leader politically, um, but the majority of the laws that he passed had more to do with church life than it did with political life or social life. And um, ironically, the intent, the probably the probable intent of the Pope at that time, it was Leo the Third, is that correct? I guess. Was he wanted to give this this king power from the church, i.e., from the Pope himself, right. in order to earn favors from the king to wield political or military action on the church's behalf. And yet, here we are with Charlemagne, he wanted to impose his own authority, saying, Pope, I didn't get my kingly authority from you, I was chosen by God, so I am now head of both the church and the state. So that's going to have um, a huge impact on the empire, um, a, a resurrected empire. Of course, Constantinople continues from the 400s for another thousand years as the Byzantine Empire in the east. And then we have the new Holy Roman Empire in the west. Yeah, so uh, the Roman Empire dies, and with Charlemagne, it comes back to life. It's resurrected. Well, speaking of resurrection, where's the gospel in, in the Middle Ages, in these dark, early Middle Ages. We'll talk about that in our next session. Well, we're back for our third and final session of Session 7. Section, I should say, of Session 7. Uh, we're going to talk in this last uh, few minutes about theology and belief during this dark medieval period, this period from all the middle of the 5th century up till about the 11th century, the beginning of the 11th century. Where was the gospel? Where was grace? We know that there were people, we know that God's grace was uh, not put on the shelf for 550 years. Uh, God was doing a work in this time. And, and some of the primary theological work was done in monasteries and in, in schools. This was a big, uh, a bright spot in the Dark Ages. Right, and, and that's why we call it the Dark Ages, because with the fall of the Roman Empire, there was a loss of education, there was a loss of art and philosophy, architecture, all these sorts of different things, but there was also a loss, or maybe we should say an overshadowing of the true gospel. Uh, but one of those bright spots was actually a reform by Charlemagne, and he instituted universities and schools within the monasteries so that young men were able to learn to read and write and even do arithmetic so that they can be productive, uh, godly young men for society. Yeah, a lot of the theological work that was being done by these students in these monasteries and schools, universities, uh, was based around the, 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 the decisions of the councils through the ages on the person of Christ. We've talked about how important that 4th century was in hammering out the, the doctrine of the deity of Christ and then the Trinity as a whole. At first, in the earliest centuries, it was the deity of Christ, then it began to be the Trinity, and then it was the full Trinity at Constantinople in 381. But that wasn't uh, the end of it. Those two councils were some two of the more important councils in all of history, church history. Council of Nicaea in 325 
and the Council of Constantinople in 381. What, what happened in these other councils? That and, and we wouldn't even begin to try and name them. All the councils that took place in the synods and the, and the various meetings. Yeah, and there were several others that dealt specifically with uh, either the Trinity or the person of Christ. And uh, throughout Catholic or Church history, there are seven what are called ecumenical councils, Nicaea and Constantinople being the first two. And some of these others talked about how to more clearly or narrowly define both the deity and the humanity of Christ. Or rather, these councils came together in response to attacks or heretical views of so they were putting boundaries around who Christ is not or what he is and is not. We, we're doing that today, aren't we? We're constantly clarifying our positions on biblical um, positions uh, but based on uh, attacks that come, come our way. We do this as a, a large uh, church and we do this in our individual churches. We have to respond mm -hmm sometimes to uh, different attacks that we would think on the gospel. That's a strong word, but you can't, can't be careful it. enough. Uh, Maybe that's why in society Christians are also always looked at as being negative. They're, they're, they have a list of do not do's. But really what we're doing is responding, we're clarifying, we're putting boundaries around what we do believe and what is true. We're saying, no, you can't say this is Christian doctrine because it's not. It's not in the Bible. This is. Exactly. Um, one of the big uh, challenges to Scripture in that period was, was the use of, uh, the, the, the increasing use of icons. That seems a little... Uh, what are icons in the first place and, and, and how do they impact worship? Well, there are the little pictures on your screen there that lead to... <laughs> We're not talking about technology icons, are we? There, um, another word might be relics. And we go back to maybe the mother of Constantine who was always looking for relics, the cross of Christ. And I've actually seen the steps of, um, uh, that are in Germany that she actually had. These are multi-ton stone steps that she had moved from Jerusalem into Germany. And, and there are other pieces, maybe the hair from one of John the Baptist's locks or something like that. And what these were to people as uh, education was lost, they became something visual to stimulate uh, a euphoric sense of worship so where they couldn't perhaps read or participate in, in the service, they could look on it and work up a, a worshipful mindset. Yes, uh, John of Damascus, I believe, 8th or ninth century, said that icons are to the illiterate what scriptures are to the learned. Uh, so it, it helps, it's an aid to faith. In fact, uh, one of the most shocking things to me when I first went to the Vatican in the early mm -hmm. 1980s is the, is the veneration that people gave to these icons. There was a woman, there's a statue of Peter, uh, in there. And this is not exactly an icon, although I guess it would fall in this category. It's any kind of um, physical symbol that represents something. And Peter sitting way up and his, his feet are just about chest height. And our group, uh, our Protestant group, was watching as people would go by and they would rub this toe. And there was one woman who was rubbing it and kissing and rubbing and finally she was overcome and even though I know there was a little bit of embarrassment 
she reached down and kissed the toe of Peter. And this was like the third, Peter's third toe, because it took, the first two had been rubbed off. Uh, and people, so the problem is, theologians, and John said that, uh, look, we're not worshiping, maybe it was not John, maybe it was someone else who said, we're not worshiping the, the, the pieces of wood, but we're worshiping the Christ that they represent. Well, theologians may be able to differentiate that way, but not the laity, especially not an illiterate laity. Who, uh, It's inevitable that, that illiterate people are ignorant about important matters, especially in dealing with Scripture. You know, when there was a growing divide between the clergy and the laity, they didn't have the privilege of sitting in on these theological discussions and understanding the difference between veneration and worship, if there is a difference, or icons used to stimulate worship versus worshiping these icons. Um, I think Gonzalez has a quote in there that, uh, I forget who it is, it's probably who we were trying to uh, remember, that uh, when when the cross is made, it brings about a sense of worship, but when those two those pieces of wood are taken away and no longer a cross, he throws them away as, as garbage, as wood, because we don't worship the material. Leonidas of Neapolis. I, I, I had it written down here. Um, but again, who, who, who's going to know that uh, amongst the laity? They're, they're just going to see this cross. Now, this is a, this is a huge uh, issue later. In fact, it's one of the key things that splits the East and West, and we'll talk about that in more detail next week, but it also becomes a big issue in the, in, in the Protestant movement uh, mm. where uh, lots of symbols are just taken right out mm. uh, of, of the church, uh, especially Zwingli. We'll get, he wants to remove everything, uh, anything that is going to distract us from worshiping Christ. It's like it was hard to find middle ground. Yeah. yeah. Zwingli is not our man, by the way. Uh, he, he would be uh, the man of, uh, of the Baptist, and I know a lot of you are from a Baptist background, so am I, but Zwingli took it too far. That's a, a difficulty always, finding balance. Well, many of these guys did that just that. They either didn't go far enough in clarifying truth, or they went too far and swung too far to the other side, uh, instituting some, some type of ceremony or legalism that... To, that was not found in Scripture, and one of the, uh, several of those that we've already talked about with um, Gregory's reforms is a transubstantiation. Yeah, I, I mean icons. Icons seem like where did that? Where do you get that in, in Scripture? But transubstantiation, John six, you this know, you can, yeah, and he said, Jesus said, if you don't, if you fail to eat my body, to eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you have no part with me. So Gregory takes that uh, literally. Yes, he he sees those words applying to communion, to the Lord's Supper, to the to the elements of uh, of communion. And, and a devastating aspect of that is every time they take the bread and the, and the wine, they are re-sacrificing Christ afresh every week. The uh, the Latin for the, the the ceremony is used uh, the Latin words hocus, which simply mean this is. So the priest would raise the bread. This is the body of Christ. This would become 
the, the body of Christ. Uh, this is the blood of Christ. And at, at that moment, that wine becomes blood. So an illiterate people look at that as magic. And we get the word hocus pocus <laughs> from hocus. This mm. is, look at all the hocus pocus that's going on here. All of a sudden, this is magic. Well, it has to be magic or, or blind faith because there's no physical evidence to substantiate that that pronouncement. Nice uh, play on words there. Uh, <laughs> you know, substantiate, transubstantiation. Well, that becomes official doctrine much later, as we've already mentioned, Fourth Lateral Council in the 1200s. But it's uh, very much in play early on because of Gregory. And, and the Gospel suffers a little bit mm. because of that. Every single time... Christ, you take communion, Christ is sacrificed anew. What does it is finished mean then? Even though Christ said it, or the Bible says that he, was, he died once for all. That's right. And sat down at the right hand of God. So, mm. um, and, 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 and listen, this bleeds over into Protestant uh, theology. Does he still feel the nails? No, he doesn't feel the nails. Mm. It is fi- one time. He died once for sins, and it's done. And now, he sits beside the Father in glory, and when he comes again, it will be in power. And he will reign on this earth. Amen. Well, another uh, issue that we already looked at from Gregory is purgatory. And uh, we'll we'll just sort of set that aside now, since we already talked about it. But one of the instances of how to get out of purgatory Uh, we may call the treasury of merit and uh, this was a development and I I can't put my finger on who made it official but during this time period the treasury of merit became um, tradition within the church being that if you didn't have enough good works to 100% save you from either uh, punishment during this life or purgatory you can rely on treasure chest, a trove of good works from other saints. And again, that has no no, no basis in Scripture whatsoever. But, um, it, you, not only did it ex- exist, uh, there was a price you had to pay, literally, money, indulgences. Indulgences is paying for the, the relief of the punishment for those sins. And we'll see over the next couple of weeks when we look at... Um, the other portions of the Middle Ages, how this grew in abuse to the point where it could actually God could take no more and said, I'm going to put a few people into play that will reform my church and recover biblical uh, doctrine. Indulgences ultimately became uh, the ultimate uh, church uh, fundraising. Hmm. Event uh, and and it brought about the the Reformation. Well, uh, the gospel uh, is not uh, completely suppressed during this time. You can see that a lot. We're heading toward a salvation of works. Clearly, in the church is beginning to espouse a salvation of works. All along the way, we've talked about how uh, theologians said things that were mistaken uh, later to be doctrine that would lead you to think that one must do good works. Augustine especially had a lot of things to say that the church said, oh yeah, we like that and and this is what Augustine meant. We look at Augustine and we say, no, he meant something entirely different. Uh, In fact, there was a 
a disciple of, of Augustine, and I don't, I can't pronounce this guy's name, Neil. You're going to have to tell us about that. I'm just going to guess at it that it's uh, Gottschalk. Uh, I believe he's German in origin, but uh, in, in the ninth century. So we're talking from Augustine in the fourth, fifth, early fifth century, early fifth, fifth century to the 800s, um, hundreds of years where the Augustinian view of grace and election have been lost. Uh, we saw that early on as soon as Pelagianism was denounced as a heresy. The church also denounced semi-Pelagianism as a heresy, but then turned right around and adopted it as its practice, as its practical position on grace and predestination. And it took hundreds of years until another pinpoint of light uh, being got shock, um, discovered, rediscovered Augustinian, Augustinianism and began preaching it, traveling to different uh, monasteries and, and bishoprics and, and preaching on it, and was was shouted down and beaten. And I, I can't remember for sure, but he may have even been martyred for the sake of something that the Catholic Church had early on adopted. Yeah, he was a pretty fiery guy. He, he, he brought some of that on himself. But essentially, uh, he was persecuted for his beliefs uh, and it was in in many ways it was a suppression of the gospel mm. uh, of the belief that Jesus died for our sins. Well, there were a number of people during this time during these dark dark ages who believed. Uh, it's we want to say okay if you believe this this and this and we write it down one two three then you are a Christian. When you study church history you realize it's just not quite that easy. Uh, one of the mistakes that the Catholic the Catholics were led into the error by saying, well, yes, we believe very much in God's grace, but we believe God mediates grace mm -hmm. through communion, through baptism, through penance, through marriage, through other uh, seven... Uh, seven sacraments. Right, seven sacraments, in, in which in, through which God mediates grace. So... Um, we, we're going to come, when we come to the end of this time, we're going to see a man named Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, and it'll be all several weeks before we get to Anselm. But just to give you an idea of the light that existed during these dark ages, Anselm is the reason that we uh, can articulate the, the, the atonement as a substitutionary, a, a doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in my place. It had never really been articulated that, that way in the first thousand years of the church. And so Anselm is going to do that. And he didn't do that just out of the blue. Uh, he didn't do that in a vacuum. It was because of his study of those in church history, not only Augustine back, but those uh, later. So uh, I guess that, that may go to show us that even through what we call dark times, we may not see it through the people that we study, but God is still continuing to maintain a remnant through this period, and, and He's continuing to save and keep people like us, even though we don't have all our I's dotted and our T's crossed just like they, they ought to be. Yeah, that's right. The councils are, are continually narrowing or at least clarifying the focus on the Trinity, uh, the, the papacy 
is actually working in another realm altogether saying if you want to be saved that's that's nice this belief in the trinity but you've got to believe the church mm-hmm. has just as much authority as the scripture and the truth about Jesus and so um, people are, uh, are are confused but the church has all the power so it's just best to believe and especially if you don't have the ability to even read the scripture you just have to rely on what's being told but again, Jesus is working all of that time, and it's going to be thrilling to see the way God moves continually through the Dark Ages, and then uh, during the Reformation, uh, a, a bright ray of light burst onto the world, and we are beneficiaries of that light. So, uh, next week, what's up next week? Still in the same time period of the early Middle Ages, uh, but we're going to be looking at the rise of Islam and the response of, of that, which being uh, the Crusades. And in the middle of that, there's going to be a rather large split amongst the church, east and west, called the Great Schism. Yes. Okay, I look forward to that, Neil. Thank you very much for hanging with us.